Hi there, everybody. Hi there. How are y'all doing today? Whoa, there we go. There we go. Getting, I'm kind of wild. I'm still wild with that. After three years of this, I'm still wild with the camera. So, hey, everybody, we're glad that you're here. We are. Um, you may hear lawn mowing in the background. They really told us they would leave us alone at this block of time, but, you know, those kind of promises fade away over time, don't they? So, we're glad that you're here. My lovely wife, Patty, is pretty darn under the weather. I am really sorry, folks. So, I'm not she's gonna probably going to duck out of today. here and not say much or whatever. So, but she's here, and you know she's 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 making it. She's just not used to being sick. I'm That's never the thing. Sick. She's, so this is she's so a very for me. very. And this she's is day six. Each day, I think I'm going to feel better tomorrow. And I've had all my shots. I've had the pneumonia, the COVID, the uh, flu shot. So I think it's just a, a really bad cold. But Maybe boy, all the shots gave it to you. I don't know. Maybe. But my mother said three days coming, three days here. Three days going. Oh, wow. On the common cold. Nine days total. Okay, well. Now, my mother was wrong about many things, so I would, I bless her soul. Yes, I wouldn't take that, you know, as gospel. But anyway, okay. So, I'm glad y'all are here. We're going to return to the Book of Numbers today. Patty and I ha are glad to be back. We had a wonderful time in Florida. We do. We like to travel. It's always nice to come home. We uh, got to do several days in Disney with our son Robert and his wife Savannah. She had to leave. They had to leave early because Savannah's grandmother passed. She had been on hospice and she passed, so they went back with the funeral. And we stayed and had some good days between the heat, kind of a little bit of sandwich job between the heat and the rain. Yes. There was some good weather there yes. that we took advantage of. And on the rainy day, we just didn't do much that day. It, but and it you was were a coming good down. thing. It was the was, first day I was really coming down sick. And, and it was our sixth day. Yes. We had Would have been our parks. sixth day in the, the parks. Park. And we have a good time at the parks, but our sixth day might have been just a wee bit much. Yes, yes. You know how that goes. So, so. but um, yeah, so nothing really new to report from Disney other than the fact that it's even more complicated than it ever was to really visit the way they work everything now and it's even more expensive than it ever was and it's just pretty easy to not be happy with them at all it is very true it, it really if, is if you don't have somebody with you that's done it the new way you are really going to be lost um, you can't just walk in the park and expect gonna that you're going to get on a whole bunch of rides that day you just can't Fortunately, our son Robert's an expert, so, so long. Yep. he was able to show us the ropes and everything. The and, you did, and you did a fine job after he left, honey. You got it all set up. I, I did. I got up that last morning, and at, you have to get up at 7, I mean before 7, because at 7 o'clock you got to make the call to, to reserve your place in line. No kidding. And then I was too sick to go. Now, Patty, aren't we always up at 7 a.m.? No, we're not. <laughs> we are. Uh, no. We are late. Go, we are late going to bed and a little late rising. So. Yeah, we are. Anyway. We were, there's a certain rhythm to our life. Yes. Right, love? Yes. Yes. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm going to let you start. Okay. I'm going to open us up with prayer. Gracious Lord, we are grateful. Here it is Thanksgiving week. So this is a week to be I don't know, maybe especially grateful. Well, we have so much to be grateful for year-round, including the fact that we can come together on Monday afternoons um, to sort of step out of our week and put ourselves in the pages of Scripture and read them and learn from them and um, 
try to hear even those passages and places that we probably have never heard sermons preached on, no matter how long we've gone to church. And that's certainly the case with the book of Numbers. But we are glad to be here, and we pray your, spill, your spirit will fill us with lots of energy and enthusiasm this afternoon. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All righty. Okay, my love. Cheer out of here. All right. I will reconfigure this. So, my friends, we are, this, today is actually the second week, the second lesson, I guess I could call it that, in the book of Numbers. And two weeks ago, we traced through the history of Israel, bringing the people all the way up to Mount Sinai. Because here's, the when the book of Numbers opens, remember, the Israelites are still at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They have gone there after um, fleeing Pharaoh. God has led them to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, given them his law, given them the blueprints for the tabernacle. And now um, Leviticus, which is the second book in the Bible, the book, the book of Torah is a book of law. And now book of Numbers is like in a book of organization. And we did the first two chapters in Numbers, and it's we looked at how they had a census of each of the tribes, and we talked about the way the tribes were constituted, and they're gonna march to the Promised Land as tribes, as clans, which isn't really surprising because he, we, we tend to be very, very tribal people. Um, you know, in, in some countries, there's a long cultural history and ethnic history around that, around the tribe, like the tribe of the French or the tribe of the Scandinavians or whomever it might be. But still, in this day and age, people are often get very tribal around things like, you know, political parties and other things. So, so they're gonna march to the promised land as tribes and they've been they've been counted we looked at the numbering and so forth for each of the tribes and we saw that the book of numbers is written in kind of a formulaic way so once we read the um, counting and stuff for the first tribe we saw that the second tribe was the same way third fourth fifth sixth all the way through the tribes now today we're going to learn about the Levites and the priests and the way that they're all going to be set up and organized. And it will be the same thing, that there will be um, uh, some formulaic uh, paragraphs that we'll read the first one, and then we'll see how the next two or three are set forth in exactly the same manner. Okay, The subject may change a little bit in these chapters, but it's, it's still very, it's a very, it's a very organized book. It's a very orderly book. And I do think there's something there that we could talk about. Um, Jews and Christians have always emphasized that God is a God of order, not chaos. Chaos, indeed, in the Bible represents the absence of, the absence of God, put it that way. And you see this, um, one of the most popular metaphors for this in the Bible is the ocean, the sea, S-E-A. 
and the sea for the Hebrews was a symbol of chaos because they were not seafaring people. They were an inland people. They didn't live on the coast. Um, they, I think, just, just didn't want much to do with it. And so the sea is a symbol of chaos. And in writing some of the apocalyptic writings of Daniel and other places, the beasts come that threaten Israel are coming up out of the sea and so forth because they're born out of chaos, you see? Not order. Um, if you go to the fourth chapter in the book of Revelation, God is on his throne and the sea, there's a sea around God, but it's like glass. Signifying what? No chaos, all order. And um, the scientific revolution in the West was carried forward on the belief that God's creation is orderly. That if Isaac Newton or anybody else did an experiment and then somebody else came along and did the experiment in exactly, exactly the same way, they would get the same result that Isaac Newton got because God's creation is orderly. It is predictable. It is why we could land rockets on the moon because we, it, you could figure it out down to the nth, the nth number. If you remember, the, there was a, um, oh gosh, there was a great movie about the NASA program about some uh, black women who were uh, math whizzes and I think it was maybe Figures was the name of it, but they could do this. They could do that work because the universe is orderly at the macro level. Now down at the lower level, at the, the quantum level, not so much, but that's a different story. So it's not surprising then that they're gonna march in an orderly fashion. It's not surprised that the work of the priests is gonna be very order, it's gonna be laid out very orderly. So let's take a look. Um, I'm gonna work through a, a couple of slides to get us to the slide that has the um, tent of meeting and how the tribes are organized around the tabernacle there. I hope the lawnmower in the background isn't too bad. I could try to change the mic settings, but I think I will only screw that up. So we'll endure here for a moment or two. It's not that big a yard, so it doesn't take them that long. Okay, so let's see. What have I got here? Okay. Okay, first of all, I'm supposed to tell you, I do want to tell you that this next Sunday is going to be a little bit different and that the dean of Baylor University's Truett Seminary is going to be at St. Andrew. And he and Arthur are both coming to my class at 11 o'clock on Sunday. And I really do hope that all of you who can be there will be there. I think it'll be a really interesting morning um, for us. And I hope that you're able to come back at 5 p.m. in the Hasley Chapel where um, the dean will talk about the first generations after Jesus. And yours truly, that is me, will be his questioner after he finishes his talk. So, so I hope you're able to, to, to come then. The Cowboys aren't playing. They play this Thursday. So really, we can all be there at 5 o'clock in the Hazzy Chapel.
I think it'll be a really, a really good experience for us all. So, all right. So here is the tabernacle. Um, I've used this illustration a few times. I like it a lot. I think it's neatly done. I like that it's very clear. Um, this is a good diagram, and it simply shows how the tribes are arrayed around the tent of meeting, all laid out by God, by the orderly God, telling people even where the clans are supposed to set up their tents. And around the tent of meeting are the Levites and the, and the sons of Aaron. They are the priestly class. And so I'm probably going to come back to this in a few minutes, but these Merorites, Kotha, Kohathites, and Gershonites, they are the heads of the three Levite clans, and then there are the two sons of Aaron. And we're going to meet all of them in just a minute. Okay, so I'm going to put this aside and come back to it in a bit. And we're going to go right to where we ended last week which I'm pretty sure is chapter 3, verse 1. Not last week, obviously. I mean two weeks ago, but you can forgive me. So, uh, my last shot of coffee for the day. Okay, so <laughs> book of Numbers, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, this is the account of the family of Aaron and Moses at the time Yahweh, the Lord, spoke to Moses at Mount Sinai. They're still there. Okay, The names of the sons of Aaron were Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, four sons of Aaron. Now those were the names of Aaron's sons, the anointed priests, who were ordained, ordained, means... Um, authority is passed on to them. They were ordained to serve as priests. Gosh, that lawnmower is getting noisy. Um, talk amongst yourselves for a minute because, oh, that's the blower out there. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, man, I'll have to send them a note. But they'll quickly move on. And hello, everybody. I did what wasn't able to greet when I sat down here initially, but I'm glad y'all are here. Okay, so back to verse 2. The names of the sons of Aaron were Nadab, he's the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Those were the names of Aaron's son, the anointed priests, who were ordained to serve as priests. They are the priestly class of Israel. They have a job. Their job is going to be to serve the tabernacle, to serve God in the tabernacle, in the whole system of the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all the rest of it. Now, verse in verse 4, we learn that Nadab and Abihu, however, died before Yahweh when they made an offering with unauthorized fire before him in the desert of Sinai. Okay, so that is a brief little story in the book of Leviticus about how these two sons of Aaron, they kind of went off on their own and they did something on their own and they did it wrong and the story is not clear about exactly what they got wrong, but they got it wrong and they 
they died as a result because they had abused God's holiness and they were consumed by it, I think is probably the best way to think about it. And in the second half of verse 4, we learn that they had no sons. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests during the lifetime of their father Aaron. So if I go back to my tent, you see on one end, this is the uh, uh, entrance end of the tent, where it says, in quote, the sons of Aaron, those two sons are Eleazar and Ithamar. All right. So, and I can still, I can see all the comments. Patty's not here right now. She had to leave. She just wasn't feeling well at all. So just type in what you have. I can see it. I will check myself sometimes. And if you have anything you'd like to talk about or ask me, you know, please type it in there. So, verse 5. Yahweh said to Moses, Bring the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron the priest to assist him. That, my friends, is the essence of what the job of the tribe of Levi is. They are, they are the ones who are going to assist um, Aaron and his sons in this priestly work. <clears throat> they are to perform, perform duties for him and for the whole community at the tent of meeting by doing the work of the tabernacle. They are to take care of all of the furnishings of the tent of meeting. That's the actual tent structure itself. Um, if I go, if I go back a slide, okay. The tent of meeting is the tent structure. Ah, pretty clear. The tabernacle is the entire enclosed structure. Does that make sense? It was called the tent of meeting because it's where Moses would go to meet God. Because in the back of it, in the holiest of holy section, they kept the Ark of the Covenant and the, the top on that, the cover on that box was called the mercy seat and it is like a portal to God's dimension and it's where Moses would meet, would meet God. So, did the two sons who died likely die child less. Well, we're told, let me get back. Okay, so we're told that the two sons, um, they had no sons. They might have had daughters. I think we could, I, you know, just reading the English here, it would seem that they only had those sons, but they might have had daughters. Okay, but the daughters are not, this is a patriarchal culture. The daughters are not going to be part of this. These, these priests are, are their men. It's like in the beginning of the book of Luke. Um, Zechariah and Luke chapter 1 is a priest in Israel from the tribe of Levi. His wife, Elizabeth, is actually also from her priestly line, the line of Aaron. But she can't function in the temple the way that her husband can. Why? Because she's a woman. You know, that's why I always tell the women in my classes, none of you want to go back and live in this world because your, your, your brain would explode um, by how patriarchal this world is. 
Um, we get a little taste of that when we take people to Israel and they go to the Western Wall to pray and the men get this huge, glorious section. It's magnificent and you go in, you can go inside where it's air conditioned and there's, there's all these books and libraries and scrolls. The women get this tiny little bit out in the sun with plastic chairs. That's how it is. So it's it's a very culturally very different than where we are now. Of course, a hundred years ago, women were in America were only getting the vote about just about a hundred years ago. So, verse eight. They're going to assist. They're going to assist Aaron. And verse 8, they are to take care of all of the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. There's a lot of work involved in the tabernacle. A lot of, a lot of sacrifices have to be offered. A lot of maintaining that has to be done. The purpose of it is so that God, this holy God, could dwell with an unholy people. And some years ago, I took to describing this priestly system with all the sacrifices and the rest of it as a splint. If you break your leg, a splint will enable it to heal. A splint might even enable you to hobble around with a little crutch or something. But it's not, it's not a totally healed leg, a splint you get rid of. So, but right now, they are an unholy people, and God is a holy God, and God is going to dwell with them, and this whole system is in place to enable that. That's the way I see it. I think it's helpful. So, verse 9, Give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are the Israelites who are to be given holy to him. Their sole job as the tribe of Levi will be to support the work of the temple. When they get to the promised land, they will not get any land. They will be supported by the other tribes. Their work is to support the priestly system. Aaron, generations later, the priests of that day. Verse 10, appoint Aaron and his sons to serve as priests. Anyone else who approaches the sanctuary is to be put to death. Okay, so... I said, I think, last week, I, th I said this, that the way this worked was that the closer you got to the tent of meeting and then to the tabernacle and then inside it to the tent and then inside the tent into the holiest of holies, it becomes more and more and more holy. And so there are restrictions on who can cross those boundaries, as it were. And that um, they, they just this is this is all to be obeyed to the letter. It, it's because God is holy. God is like a burning sun in that regard. You can't fly too close to the sun um, and survive. You you can't you can't approach this holy God without all of the benefits of this priestly system 
um, and it all has to be obeyed or you will be consumed by God's holiness, by the fire, the heat of, of God's wrath. But God spells it out to the nth degree what has to be done. So it's, it's not like you're just going to stumble into some mistake. They know what they have to do. They know what they should not do. It's like when they arrive at Mount Sinai and God says, okay, this is my mountain, but you don't touch it. He says, Moses, tell the people, you don't touch this mountain. Don't try to climb up this mountain or you will surely die because they are breaching this um, boundary, this, this space between the holy God and the unholy people. That seems very strange to us because we are Christians and we are now living 2,000 years past the time that Jesus died for our sins when the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And we see things all through Christian lenses, which is great. But when you come here, you have to take the Christian lens off. These people don't have the benefit of Jesus, of Jesus' faithfulness all the way to death, even death on a cross. So the sacrificial system that God sets up is the system that will be used to enable God to live with them. With the coming of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, we don't need that system anymore. We don't need the priests. We don't need the sacrifices. You couldn't possibly do better than Jesus. But that's not where they are. They're, they're still like 1,500 years before Jesus which is kind of a long time. Um, verse 11. So Yahweh also said to Moses, I have taken the Levites from among the Israelites in place of the first male offspring of every Israelite woman. The Levites are mine for all the firstborn or mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, allowing you guys to escape, I set apart for myself every firstborn in Israel whether human or animal. They are to be mine. I am the Lord. So, this, the, the, the firstborn among the Israelites uh, belong to God and are dedicated to God. And what is going to happen here is that because God is going to take the Levites as a tribe in service, that is going to serve as the redemption for the firstborn in Israel who would otherwise be dedicated to God's service. Okay? So the Levites are going to take their place. That, that's the idea. Now, as time goes on, well, what happens? Well, what happens is you end up with with the practice of the the um, the firstborn um, sons of Jews being taken to the temple and being redeemed back for like five shekels or something five shekels, and and that story around Jesus is recounted in the book of Luke. That's what they do, Luke chapter two, I think. 
Um, that's where they meet Anna and Simeon is when they've gone there to have Jesus circumcised and to um, redeem him back, being a firstborn. And it all goes back to the, uh, to the time of the Exodus. And we'll see that there are some really interesting connections here, like kind of, kind of like connecting two, two wires that run right through this portion of numbers that we're coming to. I was pretty fascinated when I was working on this. I hope you are. <laughs> this has been kind of, I'm learning stuff every time I prepare for this numbers class. Because like I said, I've never spent this much time in the book of Numbers. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses in the desert of Sinai, count the Levites by their families and clans. Because we know they like to count. This is orderly. Count every male a month old or more. So these are not accounting of fighting men. Remember when the clans were counted, it was men 20 or older. This is not fighting men. This is simply men. Boys. Men. Infant males. So Moses counted them as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. And these were the names of the sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. So look back at my diagram. See the Merorites, Gershonites, and Kohathites. These is the clan of the three sons of uh, Levi. Now, I mean, Levi himself, of course, is long dead. Levi was one of the sons of Jacob. He's been dead a long time, a couple of centuries or something. But they're, they're still very, very clan aware, very, very tribal aware. Okay, these were the names of the Gershonite, Gershonite tribes, Libni and Shammai, the Kohathite clans, Amram, Izar, Hebron, and Uziel, the Mirarite clans, Mali, and Mushi. These were the Levite clans according to their families, all broken down by family, by, by, by family lineage. Okay, so we're going to read the first of these um, next sections, and then we'll see that what follows is pretty much the same. So they're each given responsibilities. Not the same. They're, you know, it's all very organized. You know, this is the way you'd like your PTA to run at school. <laughs> Verse 21, To Gershom belonged the clans of the Libnites and the Shemites. These were the Gershonite clans. The number of all the males, a month older or more, who were counted was 7,500. The Gershonite clans were to, carry, were to camp on the west, behind the tabernacle. I hope this diagram's got it right. Let's see. Okay, good. The Gershonites, you see how they're on the west side? North is south, north is up. <laughs> That's awesome. Sometimes I use illustrations and... I kind of just pray they really got it right. Verse 24, The leader of the families of the Gershonites was Eliasaph, son of Lael. At the tent of meeting, the Gershonites were responsible. Here's their responsibility. For the care of the tabernacle and tent, its coverings, the curtain at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle, and the altar and the ropes and everything related to their use. 
So that's their job. That's the job of the Gershonites, that particular tribe. Okay? And among sub-tribe within the larger Levite tribe. Now, verse 27, to Kohath belonged the clans of these. Now, I won't read them all. Verse 28, how many were there? You can see it in print. 8,600 males aged one month or older. And they're responsible for the care of the sanctuary. The Kohathite clans were to camp on the south side. Let's see. Yeehaw. Kohathite, south side. Very good. And their leader was a man named Elizaphan, son of Uziel. They were responsible for the care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministering, the curtain, and everything related to their use. The chief leader of the Levites was Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest. He was appointed over those who were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. So it's one of the sons of Levi, and one of the sons of Aaron is actually going to oversee the work of this clan, presumably because of the items that they are responsible for, including the most precious one of all, which is the Ark of the Covenant. That makes sense, doesn't it? So we have one more son of Levi. To Merari belonged the clans of the Malites and the Mushites. These were the Merorite clans. And how many of them are there? 6,200 males a month old. And the leader of them was Zuriel, son of Abihel, and they were to camp on the north side. Well, I know it's right because, you see, we, yeah, there we go. It has to be. So let's see what they're responsible for in verse 36. The Merorites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, bases, all of its equipment, and everything related to their use, as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases tent pegs and ropes so what is what's happening here it's um some of us grew up with being exposed to traveling circuses sure enough that there'd be a field outside town and there'd be a traveling circus and they had a crew that was all organized to put up the tent and get everything all set up for the circus then it would run for however many days it was going to run and then they would take it all down, load it in the trucks in a very organized manner, and move on to the next town. That's what's happening here. The tabernacle, the whole arrangement here, it's all, it is all, okay, Scotty, it is all movable. Has to be. They're nomads. This is a nomadic people at this point. They don't have any permanent home. They're, they're, they're going to be they're, they're going to march through the desert, and it will be these Levite tribes who are responsible for for taking down and putting up all of this that you're looking at, and so their areas of responsibility are laid out. Um, I think that's and it just it's just they're going to be well organized, you know. Good, some good management principles here, I think, about the importance of being well organized. So, now, verse 38. Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp to the east of the tabernacle, 
toward the sunrise, the east, the east, the east. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he comes in through the eastern gate. Why the eastern gate? It is, the, it is where the sun rises. And Moses and Aaron and his sons were to camp on that eastern side. And sure enough, see, right out there, that's the big entrance to the whole thing there on the east side. Uh, we go forward one more. There we go. They're in their proper place. Cool. They were responsible for the care of the sanctuary. On behalf of the Israelites, anyone else who approached the sanctuary was to be put to death. So, Israelites would live in the camp, but among the Israelites, the only ones who could approach the tabernacle were the priests. They did that work. The average Joe Schmo, you know, in, in one of the clans, one of the tribes, the tribe of Issachar, for example, couldn't just kind of wander in through the gate of the tabernacle and you know, kind of wander up the tent and poke his head and look around. No, he's bridging that gulf in an improper manner between what is holy and what is not holy. And what would await him would be death as a consequence. Verse 39. The total number of Levites counted at Yahweh's command by Moses and Aaron according to their clans, all of all three of them, add up to 22,000. And I went back and checked the arithmetic. <laughs> sure enough, all the calculations in here are correct. I mean, I pulled actually out my little calculator and was going through and, and just checking it. Checking it twice to see who's, well, I won't say it. Verse 40, Yahweh said to Moses, now we're going to count something different. Now count all the firstborn Israelite males. So go back to that firstborn thing. The firstborn males in Israel are dedicated to God, and the Levites are going to take their place. So all the firstborn males are supposed to be dedicated to God's service, but the Levites are going to take their place. Count all the firstborn Israelite males who were a month old or more and make a list of their names. Take the Levites from me in place of all the firstborn of the Israelites and the livestock of the Levites in place of all the firstborn of the livestock of the Israelites. I am the Lord. Because it is not just the firstborn of the humans, it's also the firstborn of the livestock. Because the plague in Israel, in Israel, oh gosh, Scott, the plague in Egypt, the plague in Egypt, the final climactic plague the death of the firstborn was not only the death of the firstborn humans, but also the firstborn among the cattle and stuff in Egypt. Verse 42, So Moses counted all the firstborn of the Israelites, as Yahweh commanded him, and the total number of firstborn males a month old or more listed by name was 22,273. So, that's a problem. That's a problem. Because look back up. How many Levites are there a month or older? Levite males. I'm sorry, it's only males. 22,000. But 
There's 22,273 firstborn males among the 12 tribes, other 12 tribes. So the problem constitutes 273, too many firstborn in the clans. There's not, there's not this one-for-one -one substitution of a Levite for the firstborn. Okay, so here's what God says to Moses, in verse, starting in verse 45, really. Take the Levites in place of all the firstborn of Israel and the livestock of the Levites in place of their livestock. The Levites are to be mine. I am the Lord. They're dedicating their lives to God's service in the sense that they're looking after the sanctuary. To redeem the 273 firstborn Israelites who exceed the number of the Levites, collect five shekels for each one, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. It's some measure of weight. Give the money for the redemption of the additional Israelites to Aaron and his sons. Okay, so they are to pay for each of the 273. They are paying five shekels to be released from service to the Lord. The same thing is done um, in Luke with Jesus. they redeem him back. So, because Jesus is not going to grow up to be a priest, is he? Whoop. And, and the two, so, uh, uh, we'll read on. So Moses collected the redemption money from those who exceeded the number redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the Israelites, he collected silver weighing 1,365 shekels. That, my friends, is exactly five times 273. Again, I checked it with my handy-dandy ancient HP calculator. Yep, I did that. Okay, 1,365 shekels. Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons, so it goes to the work of the priests. So instead of getting 273 more uh, uh, men, because there's not 273 more Levites to pitch in here, the shekel money is also being dedicated to the maintenance of this priestly system and the tabernacle and the sacrifices and all of that. You know, we'll all have to be maintained. The stuff will wear out. It will get dirty. It will need to be, portions of it will need to be replaced as time goes by. So, yeah. Verse 51, Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons as he was commanded by the word of the Lord. So, I don't know. That all struck me as being quite interesting very cool, explained more to me than I ever understood about what happened in uh, with Jesus in, in Luke chapter 2. In fact, let me just, let me be brave. I really should have done this before, but let's go to Luke chapter 2. Um, and just see what we 
can find. Okay. Okay, so here's, here's the way it's written in Luke chapter 2, beginning in the 22nd verse. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, given to the Lord in service, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, that is to purify Mary after after giving birth. So this, they took Jesus in and they paid this. This is why in commentaries, people told me it was five shekels that they probably paid uh, to redeem Jesus. Uh, as the story is told in Luke chapter 2, because it was five shekels that goes all the way back to the book of Numbers. That is pretty fascinating. I realize you may not be quite as excited as I am, but hey, I hope you are. So let's go to Numbers chapter 4 now. Any questions? Anything y'all like to talk about? I'm, I'm looking at the comments. I wish I could hear you but it doesn't work like that. So let me get my, I like seeing more of the text before me, so I'm gonna turn the page on this large, large Bible here. Okay, so chapter four is more about this, this priestly system. We're not gonna read all of it. It's very, um, very it's just straightforward God just tells them what to do Verse four, chapter 4 verse 1 Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron take a census of the Kohathite branch of the Levites by their clans and families count all the men from 30 to 50 now before it was all the males a month or older but you know they can't do work so now it's those from 30 to 50 figuring they're going to do the bulk of the work, I guess. I mean, by the time you get to 50, you're like over the hill, I, I, I suppose. Count all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work at the tent of meeting. This is the work of the Kohathites at the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. When the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain and put it over the Ark of the Covenant Law, then they are to cover the curtain with a durable leather, spread a cloth of solid blue over that, and put the poles in place. Over the table of the presence, this is like the table the bread sits on. Remember in the tabernacle, there's these furnishings that make it like home. You've got a table with bread on it. You've got, you've got a, um, <laughs> nowadays would call it a candelabra. Um, a menorah, this, this lighted lampstand and so forth to provide light in, in, in God's home. I think it's the best way to think about it. And take this blue cloth, cloth and put it on the plates, dishes and bowls and the jars for drink offerings. The bread that is continually there is to remain on it. They are to spread a scarlet cloth over them 
cover it with durable leather, and put the poles in place. They're to take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand that is for light, together with its lamps, its wick trimmers and trays, and all its jars for the olive oil. Then they are to wrap it all up, all the accessories in a covering of durable leather, and put it on a carrying frame. And then we learn about how they're going to take care of the gold altar, all the articles used for ministering. They're going to remove the ashes from the bronze altar, spread a purple cloth over the bronze altar. What each, how each little piece is going to be treated. See, nothing is left to accident. Nothing is, it's all very, very detailed. The people can't ever complain, well, we didn't know when it comes to the handling of these holy things that when handled properly enable God to, to dwell with his people and unholy people. Look at verse 15. After Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, only then... Only then, after the Aaron and his sons and they've done all this work, only then are the Kohathites to come and do the carrying. And they must not touch the holy things or they will die. They themselves are assisting the priests, but they aren't the priests themselves. That will kind of come over time. But at this point, so they're going to, you know, if you picture them as everything, put it on a cart, the Kohathites can carry, can can pull the cart, but they're to leave. They're not to. They're not to mess with all of the holy things that have been taken out of the big tent. Okay, so and it goes on with how each little piece is to be treated. Now look at verse twenty-one. The Lord said to Moses, "Take a census also of the Gershonites by their families and clans. Count all the men from thirty to fifty." who come to serve in the work at the tent of the meeting. Now this is what they're going to do. They're to carry the curtains of the tabernacle, that is the tent of meeting, its covering, its outer covering of durable leather, the curtain for the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, the curtain for the entrance of the courtyard, the ropes and all the equipment used in the service of the tent. The Gersonites are to do all that needs to be done with these things. All their service, whether carrying or doing other workers, to be done under the direction of whom? Aaron and his sons, because they are the proper priests. This is the service of the Gershonite clans at the tent of meeting. Their duties are to be under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. And then on to the Mirrorites, yada yada, same old, same old. Verse 31, as part of their service, they are to carry the frames of the tabernacles, crossbars, posts, and bases, and they've got their stuff to carry. And they have a supervisor who is also Ithamar, son of Aaron, the priest. All carefully laid out who is going to do what. Verse 34, Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the community counted the Kohathites by their clans and families. All the men from 30 to 50 Years of age, you came to serve in the work at the tent of the meeting, counted by clans, with 2,750. This was the total of all those in the Kohathite clans who served at the tent of meeting. 
Moses and Aaron counted them according to Yahweh's command through Moses. So that's 2,750 men between the ages of 30 to 50. Now that is actually a lot of guys who are going to show up to do this work. It's, I don't know how they actually did it in practice because it's too many. You know, maybe they, they just did it by the time you get to Jesus' day. There, there are a lot of, <laughs> there are a lot of priestly types and Zechariah is one and when he goes into the temple in Luke chapter 1 he, to do the priestly bit that's probably his only time in his whole life most scholars think names were drawn by lot and when his time comes that's probably his only time because there's so many so maybe it was the same thing here even at the beginning they had to rotate actually who was going to show up for work to get this done because you can only have so many people on the work site as it were at one time so all right the, and how many gersonites are there look at verse 40 2630 and finally in verse 42 we see that the mirrorites how many of them are there 3200 so they've all got plenty of people, plenty of men to do this work, probably more than they can effectively use. So 46, so Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel counted all the Levites by their clans and families, all the men from 30 to 50 years of age who came to do the work of serving and carrying the tent of meeting, numbered 8,580. That's a lot of guys. No circus troop I ever heard of would have tried to show up with 8,000 men to do the work of tearing down the circus tent and moving onward. Too many. Verse 49, at Yahweh's command through Moses, each was assigned his work and told what to carry. Absolutely. Thus they were counted as Yahweh commanded Moses. And you can see why the book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers, huh? All right. Anything? I'm looking at the comments. Okay, so now, gratefully, we get a change of pace. Remember I said that the issue is that the people are unholy. And so God gives them various purification rituals and purification restrictions in order to enable God to dwell with them. Okay? And so Israel ends up with a set of purification regulations about who can be where, who can come into the camp, um, and that's what we're beginning to get into. You get a good bit of that in the book of Leviticus, but, but here in this, the context of getting ready to move onward to the promised land, we get some more. Now, Yahweh said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease. You know, um, Sometimes in old translations, the word leprosy and stuff would be thrown around, but it, it really is, most scholars agree now, just a more general 
skin disease problem. They don't know a lot about one from another, but they're very scared of what is contagious, naturally. They're, they do probably aware that some are worse than others. Um, they don't have all the diagnostic tools we have now, so the, the solution in a practical sense, which people often want to talk to me about, is simply to have those people travel outside the, the, larger, the larger group. Um, from a biblical sort of theology standpoint, um, they would be seen as as impure in their affliction. That the, that, that their uh, affliction, which has rendered them um, unpleasant in appearance, <coughs> has rendered them unsuitable to to step into an ever holier camp. So, so send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. The... In the parable of the Good Samaritan, why do the priests, priest and the Levite pass by the man who's been beaten and left for dead by the robbers? And why do they refuse to render him aid? Because they think he might be dead and they know that if they touch a dead body, it's gonna go, they're gonna have to go through this whole process of making themselves ceremonially, ritually clean again in accordance with the law of Moses. And um, so it comes to the Samaritan to do it. But this is, this is the same thing. This is why uh, generally speaking in Jesus' day to go forward all that, all that far in time caring for the dead was left to the women. was left to the women because the men were afraid of becoming, you know, ceremonial unclean and so being a patriarchal world, they leave it, they leave it to the women. Even with that, when Jesus dies on the cross, nobody is willing to handle Jesus' body on the Sabbath. So they have to hurry and take down the body and put it into this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and then come back on Sunday morning after the end of the Sabbath, the women will, in order to finish tending to Jesus' body. Um, and so why, why this view of death? I, I, you know, I pondered that some. The scholars have different opinions. I, I personally think it is because death is the antithesis of God. God is life. Death is the enemy. Um, what's the wages of sin, according to Paul? The wages of sin is death. So, so the, 
you may see death. We may see death. It's just a natural part of life because it's what happens to us. But it isn't how it was meant to be. God didn't create us to die. Death enters the picture because of human rebellion against sin. And resurrection is the sure demonstration and promise that death will not hold us, that God's victory over sin is also God's victory over death. But it, it, holds, it holds a powerful place in the law of Moses, death does. So skin disease, discharge of any kind, um, unclean because they've handled a dead body, all those folks have to stay outside the main camp. So just, just, picture, just picture a center tent that we'll call that the tabernacle, the camps are right around it. And then outside that is obviously where other people could pitch their tents. Gentiles, um, these folks who are ex excluded for a time or sadly maybe for their whole lives. Um, I'm thinking of, to go to the Gospels again, the woman who has had basically a period that has lasted 10 years. And she is desperate. And she isn't just, she's been to many doctors, we're told. But she isn't just desperate because of her physical ailment. She's desperate because of the shunning that she has endured as a result. Um, women went off by themselves to look after themselves and other women when they were having, when, when they were having their, their periods. And it, it rendered them un, unclean. And it was only when they had finished and had gone through the right ritual that they could return to, you know, like proper society and households and stuff. So that woman who has been menstruating for a decade has been leading a very, very difficult life. That's why she is so desperate. That's why she crawls on her hands and knees to, as I see it, to, to touch Jesus, to touch any piece of him, even just his garment, in order to be healed. And she is, and it's not just a physical healing. She can now return to the community, uh, born anew, healed, um, without carrying this this uncleanness that she has for a decade or more. So, verse 3. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp where I dwell among them. The Israelites did so. They sent them outside the camp. They did just as Yahweh had instructed Moses. Verse 5. So Yahweh said to Moses, Now say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way, and so is unfaithful to the Lord, is guilty, and must confess the sin they have committed. couple of things to note. This is simply, the wronging is not laid out. It simply wrongs another person. How did they know what was, what constituted committing a wrong against another person? Well, that's laid out in the law of Moses. And the essence of it boils down to the um, Ten Commandments. 
And those boil down to the two commandments that Jesus lifts up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what the second half of the verse says. They've committed the wrong and have been unfaithful to God. When we sin, we wrong another person, but we commit a sin against God because it's God who has instructed us to remain faithful to God in all that we do. And that means loving God and loving neighbor every day and in every way. So when we, when we wrong a neighbor, we are being unfaithful to God. And it is that unfaithfulness to God that is the sin. The wrong's the wrong, but it is that unfaithfulness to God that is the sin that we commit when we, when we do wrong against somebody. And whether it is lying about them, coveting what they have, dishonoring our parents, I'm sticking in the Ten Commandments here, stealing, murdering, and all sorts of there's all sorts of things set out in the in in the um, law of Moses about what constitute wrongs, but they are really just all the ways that really you and I can imagine what it means to not love someone. I think I think often in us there's a there's a deep seated knowledge of what is right it's it's not it's not foolproof because we we can we can wreck it if if you think of it as a moral compass um the darkness in our hearts the the sin um that all of us share knocks that moral compass off a certain amount and then we can choose to knock it off more and more and more and more until it's just somehow obliterated. And this has been on my heart a lot lately since the October 7th massacre in Israel. Because when it happened, I thought to myself, well, wow, there are tough ethical decisions that have to be made in this world. Sometimes right and wrong can be a little difficult to discern, but not in this case, everybody's gonna understand with great moral clarity, <laughs> what is right and wrong on October 7th. But no, it turns out not to be the case. And there's all thousands of people, <coughs> an astonishing number of people, who, can't, who lack the moral clarity around the murder and kidnap and and torture of these women and children and men and parents. It's, it, it's a testament to the power of sin is what it is. So here, he's, God says to Moses, say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so was unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. Know thyself was written across the top of the um, Delphi, the Oracle of Delphi for the ancient Greeks. We do need to get, we, we need to see ourselves in the world with clear glasses, not rose-colored glasses, very clear glasses. 
how do we how do we how do we combat the sin in our lives if we don't even see it? If we're incapable of saying to ourselves, oh, I can't believe I did that again. Why did I say that? That wasn't kind. Why? If we can't do that, how, how, how much progress could we ever make? So they have to confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done and add to it a fifth of the value to it. That's like, um, I think in courts today, they have, you know, sort of restitution damages and then punitive damages, right? Yeah, I think they do. To try to get people to commit fewer wrongs. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done and a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong, the restitution belongs to God and must be given to the priest along with the ram from which atonement is made for the wrongdoer. So that is like presupposing that the person who is wronged is actually dead as a result of the wronging, I think. That's what it's, that's what it's about. You know, I'll just say, when I was working on this, just time and again, the commentators would say, gosh, the Hebrew here is really difficult. It's really difficult. It's really difficult. So, so we have to be a little humble and accept the fact that it doesn't lend itself to as careful a use of, of logic and detail as we might like because, because it's just the language is old and we're not sure what how to read it in all cases, but I do think that's what it's about here. Verse 9, all the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Now, when I read that, my first reaction was, whoa, you know, gosh, that seems to me to be an opportunity for the priest to do wrong. That, that I'll just bet you that some of the way that the priestly families became very wealthy, and that was certainly the case in Jesus' day. Caiaphas' family was very wealthy. I bet some of that came from things like this. And perhaps they even did some not good things in order to create wrongs that they would have to get paid for. I, I don't know for a fact, but I do think I know people. Verse 10, sacred things belong to their owners, but what they give to the priest will belong to the priest. So, when we come back next week, friends, we're going to encounter the test for an unfaithful wife. Uh-huh. This is called an ordeal, is what it's called. And, and you see it in other cultures. You know, like, I guess, I growing up, I had this, Somebody, I guess somewhere I read about having an ordeal where they would, you know, tie a rock around the person's body and they'd throw them in the water. And if they sank, they were guilty. And if they didn't, they were innocent. Well, there weren't many innocent people. This does not work like that. This is not like that at all. And I think we will see next week some of the benefits to the wives of having this test because it arises when she is pregnant. 
she starts showing and she has a jealous husband who accuses her of unfaithfulness. And what if she is innocent? What if it is her husband's child and he is still jealous and he won't believe her? What recourse does she have? I think we'll see that this is one. But anyway, that's a teaser for next week. So I um, didn't see anything else here. So I will just, I see it's on the verge of 4.15. So my friends, I wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. Just, just, you know, the good thing is on Thanksgiving, nothing has calories. Yes. <laughs> nothing has calories. It's a wonderful thing. So please pray with me. Gracious Lord, it is Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving week, and, and we just pray that everyone will have a safe holiday, enjoy the people that they are sharing this holiday with, that we'll remember our um, need to be grateful, our hope to be grateful, as grateful as we should be, and just bring us back together next Monday, um, raring to go. Uh, back in the book of Numbers as these folks are getting themselves ready to head to the promised land. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, adios everybody.